0: doing? All right. yes. Amen. 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 Well, I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever wanted something so bad that it literally kept you up that night, stayed on your mind nonstop? Maybe it was this particular meal that you wanted, couldn't shake it loose, right? Just had a craving for this meal. Maybe you had it one time you was like, man, I can't wait to have that meal again. Anticipate that meal this week as me and my wife celebrate 15 years. We get a chance to eat a good meal when you celebrate 15 years, right? Yeah. We're going to get a good meal this week that I'm craving and anticipating. But maybe, maybe it was a particular movie you want to see, a particular book that you want to read. Everybody, all your friends told you the book was great. Maybe it was a girl in high school that you just wanted to date so badly you wanted to ask her, but you kept not get mustering up the courage to ask her. Maybe it was a guy that, that you wanted to date and, and you was hoping that he would ask you. Or maybe you were like, man, to heck with, him? I'm going to ask him anyway. Or, or have you ever wanted something so bad that you, that that you just stayed up all night thinking about it and, and and just lingering over it, and then you got it. Maybe it was that steak that you wanted to eat. Maybe it was that book that you've been dying to read. Maybe it was that movie that you just couldn't wait to see. Maybe you got that guy. Maybe you got that girl, and then you realize, wait a second, this ain't quite what I thought it was gonna be. A little disappointed because this guy that I thought was so dreamy is kind of a jerk. Well, this girl that I thought was just gonna change my life forever, maybe she's she's gonna change it, all right. Or well, this steak that I was dreaming of, maybe maybe it was a little underwhelming. Cooked it a little too hard. Well done. You yeah, know, even the LA Lakers may feel like that right now, right? <laughs> LeBron James, you know? I remember when off season came and, you know, LeBron announced that he was going to L.A. You could just see L.A. fans, man, they were like running around the streets like they had been invited to the rapture and it had happened. All right. They were they were they were in heaven with Jesus, man. They were just L.A. Laker fans were celebrating. They were all over social media telling everybody about how fantastic it's going to be. Man, we're going to the championship. Right. I mean, everybody's super excited. And uh, I don't know. I mean, L.A. Lakers are about four and five right now. So not quite off to the start that they had anticipated. As a matter of fact, Coach Luke Walton had a chat with his boss this week. You know what those chats are like, right? Possible chat to say, "Hey, you keep losing like this, and I know it's not your fault, but it's your fault, so you might have to leave." I'm sure Luke Walton is thinking to himself, "This is not what I signed up for." When we got LeBron James this offseason, when the King came to town, King James, as he's affectionately known as, when the King came to town, I thought this was going to be a little bit different, and and it's kind of like that for the for the Jews in our in in our text this this morning. It's a kind of disappointment, but it's a much more dire circumstance. It's a much more, it's a much more, uh, a circumstance filled with a lot more gravity than, than a LeBron James coming or going to Los Angeles. It was the Jewish people who for centuries were anticipating the arrival of a Messiah, a chosen one, a king. It was the Jewish people that were under, at one point in time, what we call theocratic rule. And, and, and that means instead of being governed by, by people, that's a democratic rule. Instead of being governed by people or being ruled by a single person, that's a monocratic rule. They were governed theocratically. Theos is Greek, meaning God. So they were literally governed by God. It was the Jewish people, nevertheless, that weren't satisfied by being governed by God himself. 1 Samuel chapter 8 tells the story of the Jews going to the prophet Samuel and demanding that a king be appointed to rule and reign over them. And Samuel has a chat with God about this in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and, and, and he says, oh, um, the, this, thing, this thing about having a king outside of God displeased Samuel. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And so he does just that. Samuel warns the people, hey, you don't really want this. You, you have the greatest setup." in all of creation. God is your king. This is what you want. You don't want these other guys to be your king. These guys aren't, they're not going to be good kings. Maybe you'll get a few of them, you know, you can pluck a few of them on your hand and say, hey, maybe two, three, four, five might be good, but you're, but you're not going to have as many good kings as you think you want or you think you're going to get. And they say, no, 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 Samuel, we know exactly what we want. We need somebody to fight our battles. We need somebody flesh and blood to fight our battles. And so they ask for a king. And their theocratic rule goes to a monocratic rule. Now, here's, here's what's amazing about God. Even though they ask for this king, God sets an order, or, or God has already planned that even though they ask for this king, and that it's not the right decision, that he's still going to use it to bring about another king. And this king, get this, this king will not simply be a person that will rule monocratically as a, as a king normally would. But this will be a person, 100% flesh, but also 100% God. So they will get a theocratic and a monocratic rule in this one king. Are you tracking with that? And so God sets in order this anticipation for this king. And they are waiting, and waiting, and praying, and fumbling, and stumbling throughout history, awaiting this king. And then the king comes. And kind of like that steak, not quite what they anticipated. Find themselves a little disappointed. This is the culmination of their disappointment in this text that we're reading in John chapter 19. They are not simply just disappointed. They are enraged by this King that has come to earth. This King that is not only monocratic, but theocratic this King that is God in the flesh, but he didn't come in a manner that they quite had in mind. This King hadn't come to overthrow, for example, the Roman Empire. This king hadn't come riding into town in char- on chariots and, and on prized horses. This king came riding into town on the back of a donkey. This king didn't bring instant power and instant riches and instant fame to the people. This king taught instead that the meat shall inherit the earth and that the poor in spirit shall inherit the kingdom of God. And so... What they were, what, what, what they were anticipating in such a king and what they received in the king cut against all of their expectations and thus led to their disappointment and their rage against that king. So much so that they decided to kill him. This king is Jesus Christ few few a few words about this king before we leave this morning one he is an undeniable king even as they mocked him and as they as they teased him they were only affirming the truth about him everything that they said and did only reinforced the point all the more that he was indeed a king pilate simply could not let this word king go whenever he described jesus Throughout John chapter 18 and throughout John chapter 19, when he refers to Jesus, he refers to him as a king. Matter of fact, he has a conversation in John chapter 18 about Jesus being a king. He says in verse 37, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king for this purpose I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate says in verse 37, you are a king. And Jesus responds, I didn't say anything. You said it. In that very moment, Pilate is declaring without declaring that Jesus is king. But Jesus does some ne- give some necessary insight into his kingdom when he declares that he's king. In John chapter 18, verse 36, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If, any, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. He says, in other words, Jesus is telling Pilate, yes, I'm a king, but not the kind of king that they think I should be and not the kind of king that you think I should be. If I was that kind of king, then I would have disrupted all of this that's taking place. But my kingdom is not of this world. The reason he was crucified in that very moment is because those who were his of those who um those who were of his original kin, the Jewish people, would accept nothing more than a kingdom of this world. They rejected the kingdom of heaven. They rejected the kingdom of God that Jesus had come to usher in. Hearts, listen, hearts that are geared to live for this world alone, hearts that are geared to crave the power of this world alone, hearts that are geared to crave the riches of this world alone, the pleasures of this world alone, will always reject the king whose kingdom is not of this world. See, in order to position yourself to receive the eternal king, your heart must long for something eternal. Your heart will never receive the eternal king while yearning and living solely for a temporal life. Do you understand that? You will miss the king just like they missed the king every time. Nevertheless, Pilate goes on several times to introduce Jesus as king even though mockingly he is unintentionally declaring a truth he brings jesus before the people and he says behold your king even the soldiers when they flog him and they and they and they mock him they put a crown of thorns on his head and they say hail king of the jews mocking him intentionally declaring unintentionally In his final appeal to the people, as he tries to urge the people not to kill this man, he says, shall I crucify your king? And almost as a sign of judgment to all those who are who are ordering his crucifixion, Pilate unintentionally declares his royalty yet again when he takes him to the cross or when he sends him to the cross, And he takes with him a sign to put on top of that cross, says Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. In fact, when the chief priests see this sign, they confront Pilate saying, do not say the king of the Jews, say rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate, what did he respond in return? What I have written, I have written. See, even something on the inside of Pilate knows this is not just an ordinary man. It was as if Pilate knew already what he refuses to intentionally accept, that this man who they were crucifying was indeed king of not just the Jews, but king of the entire creation. He was an undeniable king, but not only was he an undeniable king, he was an innocent king. What's interesting is that Pilate finds no guilt in this man in our reading this morning. He says it, he says it in our reading this morning, but he also says it in John chapter 18. So on several occasions we hear Pilate wrestling with the people saying, listen, this man is not guilty. I see nothing wrong here. He tries several times to set set Jesus free, yet the chief priests are so committed to compelling Pilate to bring punishment upon Jesus that they threaten Pilate's position. They say to themselves in John chapter 19, verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, listen, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so, in other words, they tell Pilate, listen, if you release this man, it's going to be trouble for you. We're going to make sure Caesar finds out about this. And they not only are persuading him to punish him, but they're persuading him to punish him in the most severe of ways. See, the crucifixion was a punishment reserved for the most heinous crimes, terrorists and murderers and rapists. And yet here was Jesus amongst an onslaught of echoes, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. What did Jesus actually do to warrant such a punishment in the minds of the people? I'll let lead pastor of Austin Stone Church in Austin, Texas, Matt Carter, answer that question for us. I quote him. What did Jesus do to cause them to respond with this level of hatred? Jesus challenged what they held most precious. Their system of religion was the most important part of their lives. They treasured more than anything to the control. They wielded over the nation, controlled through guilt and fear. Jesus came to offer them freedom from guilt and freedom from fear. He taught that their religion wasn't the answer, but the gospel was. God's free gift of grace is what people need. Why do men and women need the gospel, he continues? Because the human heart is like a pigsty. It's a dirty and nasty, full of filth, and it smells rotten, mud and waste fill every corner. Religion looks at that pigsty and says, I can fix it. It gets some wood and it builds a nice shed and it places it over the pigsty. It picks out beautiful colors to paint the shed, plants flowers out around the outside and places a hand-carved welcome sign over the door. It looks great at a glance, but when you open the door, the stench of pigs wallowing in their filth leaks out. Religion only succeeds in changing the appearance, not the heart. Jesus takes a wrecking ball to the shed of the religious leaders that they had built. He exposes their hearts, filthy and defiled. The gospel doesn't deal in cosmetics. It gets dirty. It takes a shovel to the heart's pigsty and starts digging out the muck of sin. It isn't pleasant at first because exposed sin is ugly. But the gospel expels sin and transforms the heart. This is what we need, brothers and sisters. But this is not what they wanted. They groan and they complain about Jesus violating the law. They say that, hey, maybe he didn't violate your law, Pilate, but he violated ours. Here's the irony in that statement. The law was created to prepare for his arrival. He in no way violated the law. On the contrary, every step of the way in his life, he was fulfilling it. But in fulfilling the law, he was removing the power that these men and women held dear. The power to be in control of their own lives. The power to manipulate other lives. The power to declare themselves righteous. The power to hold power over themselves. It's that power that makes us desperate. We want that power. We want the power to declare ourselves righteous. We want the power to be in control of our own lives. We want the power to manipulate and control others. This power causes us to trample on others, even on the innocent, like Jesus. me say a word about systemic corruption while we're looking at this text because for those unconvinced that injustice can not only be found in individuals but in groups, not only in isolated incidents but in systemic structures, look no further than John 19 in the case of Jesus. A guiltless man sentenced to death on trumped-up charges. The law built to protect the innocent now is being used to punish the innocent. If the king of Israel can't get a fair trial, why are we so certain that everyone does? If the Holy Son of God is unjustly sentenced by the people, why are we so confident that no one else is? See, that sort of false thinking comes from this deluded way that we view our own righteousness. We want to believe that at our best, we would never let our power corrupt us. We want to believe that at our very best, we would never let our fear of men shape our decisions. We want to believe at our very best that we would never let fear of losing something turn us cold to the needs of others. We want to believe at our very best that we would never show partiality to others who are like us in order to keep those who aren't like us from acquiring what we have. But folks, there is very little that separates us from the Jews that were screaming crucify him. In that day, no matter what age of history you are in, no matter what geographical location you may reside, there is very little that separates us from these men and women that gathered, from the chief priests who craved power so desperately that they trumped up charges against this man, from the governing official of Rome and Pilate, who was so fearful of losing his status and position. That he allowed those trumped up charges to ride. Folks, this is not isolation. This is not an isolated incident. This is mankind. This is humanity. Individuals thirsty for power over or rather individuals thirsty for power, they order policies and structures, rules and laws and decrees to preserve that power. Pilate gives the Jews and the chief priests exactly what they want to preserve the balance of power and to not disrupt his position of authority out of fear. The chief priests make this demand in order to preserve the balance of power tilted towards them as it relates to their relationship with the people or with the people an innocent man on trial, a rejected king also. The irony of this entire story is that Israel was willing to do anything. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 8? Willing to do anything. Samuel says, no, you don't need a king. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Give us a king. Willing to do anything to get a king. And then they get the king. Not just a king, the king. They get the king that they need. They get the king that they have been longing for. They get the king that they that they so desperately want to have. And then they try to kill him. And they do kill him. They do anything to secure a king. And now that they have the perfect king, they are willing to do anything to ensure that he doesn't reign over them. See, we want a king, but we want a king to do our bidding. We want a king, but we want a king fashioned in our own image and likeness. Folks, that's not a king. That's a token. A king rules his way. A king shapes and forms his people, not the other way around. An unbelievable thing happens that highlights the rejection of Jesus. They say, remember, Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And then the chief priests say what? We have no king but Caesar. This was an insult to injury. This was so offensive. And it was already bad, everything that was going on, but this was Additionally offensive, because Jesus was innocent, he was guiltless, he was their king, but because Jesus was the Messiah that they didn't expect, they transferred their allegiance to a man that they despised. Caesar was never considered their king. He was their oppressor. He was their conqueror. They despised Rome. They despised the Roman way of life. They considered it unclean. But oh, how quickly will we forfeit our principles in order to preserve our seats of power? How quickly will we forfeit our principles to, for, to, to preserve our seats of privilege and our seats of survival They asked for a king and now their king is here. And yet since the king doesn't come the way that he think that they think he should come, they trade him away for a person who violates every principle that they claim to be fighting for. This is the rejection that John writes about when he writes in John chapter one. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The Jews would have despised no other man in this day more than they would have despised Caesar, except now they despise their own king even more. But let's look as we close at verse 16, because we find not only a rejected king, an innocent king, but a ransoming king. Verse 15, rather, in chapter 19, it says, They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. So they took Jesus. That's how verse 16 ends, very abruptly. So they took Jesus. It feels like that verse 16 almost, you know, I mean, when you think about the original, the original, um, scribes that, that actually laid out the order or set the ordering of verses and chapters in place, looks like they definitely made a mistake right there. Verse 16 should be with verse 17, right? So they took Jesus and he went. As a matter of fact, there's a conjunction there and he went. So you definitely think that it should be with verse 17. So they took Jesus, but, but, but I find God's sovereignty and providence in the fact that he ends it with so they took Jesus. So they took Jesus. Because as I read that, I think about maybe they should have took Barabbas. Maybe this should read so they took Barabbas. After all, it was Barabbas that was the true criminal. Barabbas was a thug's thug, thug. John chapter 18, man, Barabbas is, he is a terrorist, and insurrectionist. He is the kind of guy that is going and murdering people, stealing from people. He's trying to turn Rome's system upside down from the inside by causing all kinds of chaos and disruption. And so Pilate says, surely they're not going to let this man go. And so he puts Barabbas and Jesus up before the people. And he says, who should I free? It's the custom that we free somebody every once in a while. Who should I free? Barabbas? Or Jesus? Most of these people probably were scared of Barabbas. And yet they yell, give us Barabbas. It certainly would have been logical for us to read, so they took Barabbas, but we don't read that. It would have been logical for us to read, so they took Pilate. (laughs) After all, it was Pilate who was leading an innocent man to his death whose cowardice and fear was so strong that he allowed basically the chief priest to manipulate him into putting an innocent man on death row. So it would have been logical for us to say, so they took Pilate, maybe even so they took the chief priests. They were the ringleaders in orchestrating all of this, stirring up the crowd to say, crucify him, crucify him. Shouting out, we have no king but Caesar. What a blasphemous and betrayal to the God that they claim to worship. Maybe, just maybe, it should have been the people. So they took the people. Because it was the people that were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Every time Pilate tried to set him free, they said, crucify him, crucify him. These people saw the miracles, or at least they heard of them. They saw when he fed, or at least they heard about him feeding thousands of people with a young man's lunch. They saw, or at least they heard about him raising the dead. And yet here they are on this very day yelling, crucify him. So maybe it should read they took the people. But to name all of these guilty parties is to miss the point of Jesus's arrival. The goal of the son coming into the world was to literally not live a long life, but to die. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 20, and whoever would be first among you, you must be, must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So who really is the guilty party? Who really is the guilty party? Isaiah tells us, the prophet Isaiah tells us 700 years before Jesus ever shows up on earth. He tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity, the sin, the guilt, the shame of us all. We are that party. We are that party that brought him to the cross. We are that party. We are the guilty party. When they yelled, crucify him, their utterances were pushed forth by our sin. When they cried, give us Barabbas, it was our guilt that gave volume to those blasphemous chants. When they crucified Jesus, we were there because our guilt and our shame and our sin and our iniquity required his sacrifice. So it shouldn't read, so they took Jesus, so they took Barabbas, so they took Pilate, so they took the chief priests, so they took the people of Jerusalem. It should read, so they took all of us. But this is where there's joy in the midst of that sorrow. The only reason they took him was because he allowed them to take him. When you read in in, in in the text in John chapter 19, Pilate asks him a question because Jesus doesn't speak when he asks him questions. And so Pilate says, wait a second, do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You should speak up if you want to be saved here. And Jesus says, in response to that, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he delivered me over Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. You know what Jesus says in that moment? I'm here because I want to be. I'm here because I want to be. I'm here because I want to be. There are guilty parties at work, but I'm not here because they got me here. By accident or by overpowering me. I'm here for the guilty parties. This means that this sham trial was not an accident, folks. It was allowed by Christ out of love, out of grace, out of mercy towards us. The crown of thorns was not an accident. It was allowed. The the whipping across his back was not an accident. It was allowed. The nails that pierced, Through his hands was not an accident. It was allowed. The sword that pierced his side was not allowed or was not an accident. It was allowed. The blood that trickled from his head and from his side and from his hands and from his feet was not an accident. It was allowed. Out of love, out of grace and out of mercy, the guiltless took the punishment of the guilty in order that the guilty might be set free. There's a song by by a Christian rapper by the name of Shy Lin, and he says, "Um, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And there's a great hymn that echoes that sentiment. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer is yes, we were all there. We were all there when they pronounced judgment upon him. But you know what else was there? Grace, mercy, and love. The same grace, mercy, and love that is available to all those today. It would turn from their way, turn from trying to be the king of their lives, and instead put their trust, their hope, their faith in this king. Yes, we are guilty, but someone has paid for our punishment. Hallelujah.